Today I'm going to answer questions that were sent in via Facebook and Instagram. Carrie asks, how do you define pleasure? What's an expanded view of pleasure outside of just sex? And um, then there's a second question uh, that is, what are the benefits for both men and women in embracing the sensuality? I'm going to wrap those two uh, in one because the way I look at it, and of course these are only my definitions, the way I look at it is that uh, there is just sen there's sensual pleasure and there's sexual pleasure. Now, the line between those two is, is absolutely, you know, not a clear line. And you can argue that all uh, sensual pleasure has a sexual element or all sexual pleasure has a sensual element. But for the sake of looking, how do we work with pleasure in our own body? How do we uh, engage sensually with life? It's nice to look at sensual pleasure or sensual aliveness and sexual pleasure. And so I look at sensual aliveness as uh, an engagement with the senses and the resulting um, sensitivity, aliveness, and fullness that happens in the body. So sensuality is very much an embodied process for me, and so, of course, is sexuality. But uh, in sensuality, uh, we are not actually looking at sex or stimulating in sexual ways. We're looking at um, engaging with our own senses and in the engagement with our own senses, becoming more and more sensitive to all the messages of all the senses. And that's an endless, beautiful exploration that we can go into because we have, uh, you know, all senses available and within all senses, there's endless ways that we can engage with those senses. And um, often in the sensitization of the body, much more of each sense comes online. So there's all kinds of ways that you can play around with that in the sensitizing to the five senses. And within that, then there's a whole range of sensual pleasure available. And it goes from um, you know, tasting food or tea or drink that you really enjoy to um, the way the wind moves the hair over the neck or the way touch can be felt when it's disconnected, let's say, from um, looking. Because often when we look, that's our primary sense gate. And so if we close our eyes, touch takes on a different dimension and so on and so on. So um, I define pleasure as an aliveness and a fullness and a full feeling in the body. Now then, when we look at sexual pleasure, uh, most people look at sexual pleasure as the thing you do during sex or self-pleasure, and that involves um, a feeling or a stimulation of the sexual organs or the related sexual organs. And that's essentially just a small part of something much, much bigger, which is the sensual aliveness of the entire system. 
And then within the sexual pleasure, we uh, could, you know, then go into sensitizing touch to the sex organs, um, spreading pleasure through the body so it becomes full body pleasure. There's also all kinds of techniques where you work with the internal energy system channels and, um, you know, breath and how you move your body. So there's really no end to what we can do in the realm of sensation and in the realm of pleasure. And, um, the last thing I want to say about that is that, of course, within sensation and within becoming very sensitive to all the input and output through the senses, it's not all pleasurable in the classical sense, because some of these things are unpleasant. But, of course, that's also a bit in the eye of the beholder. Some people enjoy a certain amount of firmness um, or roughness in their engagement. Some people like it very, very, very um, subtle. And that's true for sensual and sexual engagement. When some people like really strong, pungent, spicy food. Some people like, like the super subtle taste of an infusion. And so... Um, how you then define pleasure is really in in the body of the beholder, so to speak, what works for when and what is your personal taste. So within that, there's a wide range as well. And so the second question then was, what are the benefits to both men and women in embracing their sensuality? And um, of course, in what I've just described uh, the the benefit of being engaged with your senses is uh, a very strong aliveness an engagement with life and life around you an engagement with your own body where your body becomes the instrument of perception and pleasure and with that expression so there's huge benefits both from a um, well-being perspective from an emotional perspective from a physical perspective and then of course from a sexual perspective because if you're sensually alive sexual aliveness is much easier to find and sexual arousal actual sexual arousal is much easier to um, enjoy because there is already fullness in the body. You don't go from totally shut down to wanting to have an orgasm, which is a really wide valley to cross, so to speak. So that's the answer for Carrie. So Renata is asking, Hi, Michaela, thank you for the opportunity. After a breakup with my ex, I do feel so crushed and procrastinating a lot. Don't do journal writing anymore or do not dance as a daily ritual. How do I break from the stagnation? What are the steps for gathering your pieces together after a breakup? Well, the first thing to uh, remember or think about is that losing a relationship is exactly like losing someone in any other way. And what I mean by that is there is a period of grief. And of course, the longer and the deeper the relationship, the longer and the more involved the grieving process will be. And it doesn't matter if you were the one who broke up or 
um, if you were broken up with, because essentially when you enter in relationship, when any of us enter in relationship, we are entering into creating commonality with each other. And uh, we suddenly have common friends or we move in together. We have uh, rituals that we do together. Uh, then we form memories together. Uh, there's kind of a own language in the relationship and, and uh, in the way you go throughout your day that's suddenly interrupted. So it's not just losing the person. It's losing the groove of your daily life. And some of the more painful things about um, no longer being in relationship with someone, doesn't matter if you lose them through a breakup or death, is that there's a million little things that you want to report to that person that you have that kind of relationship with. And all of that's gone. And that's something to take uh, serious, not serious as in it's grave, but serious as in it will take some time. So there's nothing wrong with taking a moment and actually letting yourself stop and not just go through as if nothing's happened. It's healthy and good to um, take a moment and kind of pull back and feel yourself and allow for the grief to happen and take that break and not just uh, proceed as if nothing's happened. But of course, if you wait too long, then you might get stuck in the rut of, uh, you know, just moping about. So how much time you should spend grieving and taking a pause? Well, that's up to your life circumstances and uh, also your tendencies. If you tend towards, uh, you know, a more depressive nature, probably less time and not more. Uh, but even then, it's very important to have that breather. Um, but the important piece is that you let things for a moment rest and then when you pick it back up, you pick it back up slightly different. So you're saying you don't do journal writing anymore and you're not dancing. So when you get back started, start a bit different than you did before so that you create different habit patterns that are not connected with the relationship. So for instance, if you used to maybe journal in the morning, journal in the evening, or the same with the dancing, or try something else that has a similar effect on your system for a little while so you're breaking out of the patterns that you've established during the relationship. Alex asks... <clears throat> If you had 24 hours to deeply reset and re-energize an exhausted nervous system, what would you do given a normal pantry, house, and access to nature? Hmm. Well, if I only had 24 hours to reset, I'd probably uh, do a combination of uh, lots of sleep, so perhaps... Uh, you know, planning on a really good night's sleep in a very dark room uh, with as little noise as possible and probably also a nap in the middle of the day. And then the rest of the day I would probably spend in a combination of uh, some nonlinear movement in my case, uh, a nice walk in nature or a swim or whatever can be done in the nature you have at hand and 
a bit of meditation. And other than that, just uh, sitting around doing nothing and doing nothing in a way that's uh, pleasing. So reading a book is fine or um, listening to some music, having a bath is one of my favorite reset uh, techniques. But the keys to resetting the nervous system is to allow the body to move out anything that can be move out, moved out, to rest as much as you can so that the body can employ its own repair mechanisms, have some unstructured movement so that um, that unstructured movement helps the body and the nervous system, and then do things that are clearly uh, associated in the body with rest and relaxation, like reading or going for a walk or having a bath. I wouldn't do social media, uh, TV, uh, movie, um, or anything of that nature. And you're mentioning pantry here, so I'm assuming that means what kinds of foods. Um, I think if you're lo looking at um, resetting the nervous system, it would be nourishing simple foods, maybe some extra vitamins in the form of a, a juice and uh, lots of water. That, that would be my best uh, uh, prescription, so to speak, for a nervous system reset. Next question, also from Alex, is when forming or reforming a relationship, people talk about values alignment, love languages, shared goals, etc. In your experience, what are the more subtle elements that need to be aligned or present in order to enjoy a relationship that is alive and capable of thriving long term? I'd say that's a very individual exploration and it's probably different from uh, couple to couple and from person to person based on a few factors. Uh, your other question was about the nervous system. I would say the more subtle element to consider is what does each partner's nervous system need? And what I mean by that is different nervous systems need different treatment. So when somebody is very type A, um, high performing, doesn't need to be high stress, but could be high stress, um, very active, um, then that's one nervous system. Uh, when somebody is um, traumatized, uh, had some recent loss or grief or upset or um, stress in their life that's that's situational, that's a different nervous system. Um, some people are introverts, some people are extroverts. Then there's some people who tend to be very laid back and um, nothing really bothers them. And they're, you know, from, from very laid back to downright inert. So that's a different nervous system. So one of the things I've noticed in my work with people, in mostly in couples therapy, but also individually, is that when the nervous systems are not taken care of within the relationship and there's an aggravation of the system that happens um, just through people being very different, then that can cause subtle rub or subtle um, resentment. 
So uh, an example for that is one person is extremely organized and neat in the house. The other person is really chaotic. That can cause, other than uh, the obvious, right, where people nag and complain, but even if that's not the case, um, that, um, that messiness on the system of somebody who uh, requires kind of a cleanliness and a, a kind of a minimalist or, or, or very specifically organized environment, that can cause kind of a baseline aggravation that causes eventually a bit of resentment and hostility. Or the other way around, the person who um, likes to be wildly chaotic and when they, when they cook, the kitchen looks like you know something exploded, might feel subtly thwarted by someone who wants to have it super tidy. So that's one example. Of course, if somebody has uh, trauma, then somebody who isn't traumatized will uh, probably treat them a little bit less gingerly than they need to. Um, Periods of rest are also in the more subtle domains of relational uh, engagement. Some people need rest away from other people. Some people rejuvenate by being with other people. And uh, in a partnership, there is often a bit of a rub because those things aren't aligned. And they're often not spoken about uh, because you know everybody wants to believe that in the relationship there's the common goals and that means every Sunday we'll go to brunch or um, whenever one person comes home the other person tells them uh, how their day was but that might actually not the, be the best for the nervous system and when these things get a little bit understood and aligned that can make the underlying disposition of two people towards each other a lot better. And the final one from Alex, Alex sent lots of questions. The final one from Alex that I'm going to answer is, where do you feel the paradigm of marriage is heading 2020 and beyond? What are components of a truly alive long-term partnership? Well, <laughs> I would say it's hard to tell. Um, and the reason I'm saying it's hard to tell is that there's general trends, but the trends are very different depending on the outlook people have. Uh, but one thing is for sure, it is changing and it is changing rapidly. It's very, very different now than it was 10 years ago. Some of the factors that uh, play into how relationships are changing is the financial independence of partners. So in many relationships, not all, of course, and I'm talking about a very specific slice of people, uh, of course, there's large portions uh, in the world who are not yet there. But um, often nowadays, both people in a relationship make money. So the old paradigms of uh, one person made the money, the other person raised the children are no longer applicable and everything that comes with that. There might be a voluntary relinquishing of somebody earning money for the sake of raising the children, but it's not a given and it's certainly now at a point where women can um, forge their own career path 
with as much purpose and as much uh, focus as men could for many, many years. So that has changed. And with that, how parenting is done has changed. And also um, the need for a partner to have a child has changed. And so that, of course, creates a totally different dynamic in relationship. The second aspect, of course, is that people have children way later um, and they get married way later, if they even get married. <clears throat> Lots of people nowadays don't get married anymore for um, the obvious reasons, right? It's not necessary and there are financial considerations that are often um, prohibiting people from wanting to get married. Not always, but um, often. So uh, there, there's that aspect where marriage is no longer what it used to be. And then in addition, societally speaking, nowadays people don't have to be married anymore. You're not looked at strangely when you're not married to the father of your child. Um, you can have a child all by yourself. You can have children in same-sex marriages. You can have children um, you know, adopted late in life via IVF uh, and, and egg donors. And there's all kinds of options that make the traditional role of marriage pretty obsolete. So that said, um, the other aspect that is coming to the forefront in what we see in, in our work is that uh, the assumption that one partner can fulfill all aspects of the relational life is going out the window because that's definitely no longer true. Number one, because we want so much more out of our lives. And number two, uh, we have a way more open ability to have um, multiple friends, multiple uh, circles of friends, multiple relationships, if one wants to do that. That's uh, fairly commonly explored nowadays. So the one man, one woman idea of marriage has long gone out the window. And when we look at 2020 and beyond, I think we'll see every possible combination of relationship being explored. And um, then what will happen is it will show what actually works and what doesn't work. And um, I'm quite curious to see how that all goes. And so the other question in that question you asked was, what are components of a truly alive long-term partnership? Well, traditionally, when we look at long-term alive partnership, the most important um, aspect is you have to actually like the person you're with um, and genuinely like the person you're with. Just having uh, aligned interest, interests or commonly... Um, you know, assumed goals are not going to do it. So what makes it alive these days is uh, the willingness to engage with someone who um, you're actually wanting to spend time with because there's no reason to spend time with someone these days or not as much. This is, of course, different when you're co-parenting. But the aliveness of the relationship uh, relies on there being some interest to spend time with that person rather than with any random person. And 
within that, um, the thing to look at for long-term relationship is how can you keep the engagement interesting? How can you keep your partner interested? How can you um, create newness in the relationship even though it's long-term? And so the components that I've seen work in people who have alive long-term relationships are um, liking each other, being generous with each other, keeping enough of a separate life going so that you stay interesting to your partner and um, having a general agreement on the lifestyle and the way life is being lived so that there isn't constant fighting about the direction the relationship takes. So those are some of the components I've seen work over the years. Luke is asking, I've been practicing deepening my masculine presence for several years. I feel pretty clear in that area. At this point in my life, I feel I need to further embody my feminine. I've been doing some nonlinear movement. I also have been doing regular emotional integration work for a while. What other practices do you recommend for a man who wants more connection to his own feminine? That's a great question. Uh, because it's really, really important to understand that no human is just one thing. Every man has as much feminine as they have masculine, and every woman has as much masculine as they have feminine. We just have a sexual preference. And within the sexual preference, we sometimes have to create uh, a deeper understanding and, and a, a wider skill level in that particular domain. So a lot of people um, have had to learn how to be very focused and very reliable and have goals and follow those goals. And that could be called the masculine. And that's true in the sense that that's the masculine in each person. And so certain activities fall into that domain and then they are often called the masculine activities. And then the feminine uh, activities or the feminine um, aspects of each human are the parts of us that are able to be flexible, to flow, that um, are very engaged with nature and life and um, creativity and you know very active thinking and and um, moving ideas around, moving the body around, communing with other people. Those are considered the feminine aspects of our um, per, you know of our makeup, so to speak. Now I've said this before, but this is always a good uh, thing to remember. The, the body does best what the body does a lot, meaning the body organizes itself around the repetition of things we do. So if we spend a lot of time in what is called the masculine domain, our body and our muscles and our movement and our activity will have the shape of those masculine activities. Or if we spend a lot of time in the feminine domain, this is regardless if it's a man or a woman, then our body will have the shape of those feminine um, activities. And so we can do that which we do a lot better. 
So if you spend a lot of time um, focusing on your career and on the forward movement of things and you are you know, on the computer and you're getting things done and you're telling people what to do, your body and the muscles and the nervous system are aligned to that shape, so to speak. So when you then want to engage with the more feminine aspects, you would do things as you're already doing that um, allow the body to be in the flow of things. Nonlinear movement is great because it's the ultimate engagement in that flow. It actually creates flow in the body. Um, emotional integration work also good because being aware and being responsive to one's emotion is super important in men and women alike, of course. It's considered a feminine aspect of each human, but it's a very, very vital aspect. And men have it as much as women. They might have not practiced it as much. So the more you can do in that domain, the better. Um, other practices that would be very good for um, engaging with your inner feminine are practices in nature where you um, you know, immerse in the ocean or a lake or uh, do things that uh, connect you with life force and kind of the strength and the sap of nature, so to speak, and let that run through you. Um, anything creative, of course, helps. So anything you can do that either um, engages you creatively in both your body and your mind. So this could be music or uh, painting or coloring or uh, working with clay or wood carving or whatever you want to do that really allows you to um, engage with your body creatively. Dance, of course, is a good one. Um, certain um, Kind of uh, modalities of uh, martial arts also help a lot, and because they they allow you to really uh, deepen into the ability to feel, you know, feel someone else. Um, so certain partnered explorations where you engage in feeling other people, or feeling animals, or feeling um, you know nature. That's very useful. So all of those things are really, really good to do because in an ideal world, you want to be integrated. You want to have both of those things available. Tracy asks, what are your thoughts on polyamory? Ha! <laughs> so um, what are my thoughts on polyamory? Well, I think there are always changing and um, I would say they're changing in the way that I used to see a lot of people uh, trying polyamory as a way to escape deepening into their existing relationship. So essentially one of the patterns I would see over and over and over in my counseling practice was um, people who had who got together and had a very um, explosive and alive sexual chemistry and a very adventurous, uh, you know, kind of sexual engagement. And then 
um, and often they they got together in non-traditional ways, right? They, somebody met somebody at some festival or something, and then uh, they had these amazing times, and then you know nothing happened for a while, and then they remet, and eventually people end up in relationships where they're actually creating a life together. And um, one of the things I talk about a lot is that what makes a relationship good is not what makes sexual attraction good. So relationship requires a lot of common values, common goals. The better you get along, the closer you are, the, the better the relationship. Sexual excitement and sexual attraction comes from being very different. So those strong, explosive um, sexual engagements uh, kind of wane as the relationship becomes uh, well-established. And then there comes a moment where one or two partner get restless and they decide to become polyamorous. And when that happens, of course, what immediately happens is the difference, the, the, the actual friction um, you know, the tension between the two people makes it so that often their sexual engagement gets really exciting again, not only with the other partners, but also with each other, because suddenly there's a certain at odds that comes from other people being involved and things no longer being as secure as they were. This is a, a, a very, very wide generalization. There's other models and other ways of, of people doing it. So just talking about the thing that I used to see in my counseling practice. And so then what would happen is um, instead of finding a deeper groove and a deeper sexual engagement between the two people, they'd open it up and then they could endlessly amuse themselves with discussing the pros and cons and, um, you know, keeping all the different relationships healthy and sharing and processing. And so the polyamory took over um, the, the place that was left from the two people um, just having relationship. And, and that can be problematic because often one person wants the polyamory more than another. Often uh, people very, very desperately work against their natural instincts of um, not wanting to share somebody they love deeply or not wanting to open themselves to more than one person. And, um, uh, you know, jealousy isn't really allowed. So there is a lot of suppression that happens or um, bypassing that happens. So it, under those circumstances... I haven't really seen that style of polyamory work. And so I used to always say, you know, why bother? And, it, and, and, and joke about the fact that for the, you know, hour of uh, sex with somebody who was not your partner, you had to pay for at least 10 hours of sharing and processing. But that all said, um, in recent years, I have seen... Uh, people successfully open relationships in different models than the classic polyamory model. And I've seen that actually work really well on, uh, on quite a few occasions. 
but it takes a different set of circumstances than what's traditionally done. Amongst them uh, is the, the people who've really made it work for them do not share or do not process these things with each other. And that's a huge difference in approach. And also there has to be a very cleanly, a very clean um agreements that can't be broken and a very deep trust established within those agreements so they don't have to be processed all the time. Uh, but it, I've seen it done and I've seen it done very well. And I think one of the reasons for that is that in certain circumstances, certain aspects of a relationship take their course and they can't be recovered, but others are so very strong that you don't want to destroy them. And then when there's, or, or some people are just so um, full, they have so many things going on that they can very easily maintain several deep relationships, some sexual, some not, uh, just to fulfill their basic need for engagement on all levels. So I'd say... It can work. Um, I think for most people, it's a it's a dead end, a developmental dead end, but not for everyone. And I no longer would um, categorically say it doesn't work, but I would caution to really examine the reasons and also caution against kind of the ideological possession of suddenly um, looking down on you know, the boring people who only have one relationship and, and making the polyamorous engagement uh, a bit of a religion or a cult. Uh, that usually ends in some um, calcification around behavior um, models where you can no longer feel what you really need because you have to follow a dogma and that's never good in no engagement. So those are my takes on polyamory. And then um, your next question, Tracy also sent quite a few, so I'm going to answer a few, not all of them. But is there a certain way to tend to, you tend to integrate meditation into your own practices? Or in other words, how do you connect with meditation in a way that feels exciting instead of just something that is good for you? Well, I used to meditate a lot and then I stopped for many years and now for the last six, five, six years um, I'm back to meditating and I find it rather exciting. And I think the big difference now to when I did it first was that um, Steve, my teaching partner, Steve James, um, he is an avid meditator and he teaches meditation in our workshops and He's very deeply engaged with meditation. But um, he learned meditation starting at a very young age with around, at around five in conjunction with martial arts. And he's also incredibly talented in the realms of embodiment and embodiment uh, training. And he's developed his own movement method. So his meditation style is very embodied. And I had never experienced that up to when we started working together because to me, meditation was always a bit of a bother because I didn't like that feeling of parking my body. And kind of it felt like I was leaving my body behind. And even though 
um, it allowed me to learn discipline and allowed me to learn focus. I didn't really like it. Now, um, with the way Steve teaches, and, and uh, with often uh, I sit with him so I can kind of feel his practice and, and be informed by his practice, I'm actually feeling my entire body while meditating, and often that's incredibly pleasurable. Um, and and just really really good to do and so now I'm really enjoying it and um, I use it uh, in different ways than I used to use it so the main difference for me now is that um, I'm allowing my body to be part of it and I no longer really follow any uh, specific breathing or mantra or um focusing technique I just sit there um, I can post somewhere wherever we post this podcast um, I'll post a little link to um, one of Steve's guided meditations where he actually guides that process that's probably a lot better than me explaining it um, because he's actually very good at explaining it and leading people through it and just by listening to him you can let your body be informed by that and um, I'm now really, really enjoying it and uh, using it when uh, I need to either um, allow myself to just be and rest or when I want to focus or when I want to kind of step down a bit after having been very, very active. And finally, Tracy had another really good question that I want to answer. What are your thoughts on practicing in front of a mirror? Well, it depends on what kind of practice. So I think there are certain practices where it's really interesting to see yourself. Like um, when you do flavor practices where you embody different aspects uh, and different expressions in your body, it can be interesting to do that in front of a mirror after you have practiced without a mirror. It's best to feel it in the body instead of see it in the body. But once you've really uh, felt it in the body, it's sometimes fun to see yourself look and move different. So that would be one aspect of practice. Um, another aspect of practice is that sometimes it's really interesting to sit still and kind of do eye-gazing with yourself and see what happens so that's also very useful and then different traditions have mirror practices that are uh, very specific like in the shamanic traditions of mexico um, the native mexican native uh, you know um, uh, shamans of mexico have practices around mirrors sometimes they have this black obsidian mirror and things like that that's quite interesting but that's not exactly my domain so you can look that up it's quite um, it's quite fascinating Raul I'm struggling with keeping my attention on my woman current partner she's the woman I want to be with but I still find myself trying so hard not to desire other women I don't see myself doing anything with another woman, but there's a feeling of wanting to have more flavors and or missing out on other opportunities. You told me about how to admire other women as flowers in a garden and it works, but not all the time. Also, this is the first time ever living with a partner. 
So <laughs> this, is a, this is a big one. Um, and there's many layers to this question. So I'm going to just uh, open a few uh, lines of inquiry around this, and that's by no means a complete uh, opinion or advice here. Uh, I'm going to say that because it's very, very multi-layered. So in general, um, as humans, we have many layers of uh, programming. And some of these layers of programming are uh, well described and well defined, uh, for instance, in evolutionary psychology, and um, uh, where essentially... Uh, you know, it, it is described on how humans have developed and what are the roles of men and women in the classic biological way, not in the way of um, how do you identify or, you know, any of those things, but in the very, um, you know, this is how human beings developed over, uh, you know, a long period of time. And so within the concept of this is how human beings have survived till now, what we're looking at is um, the simple act of survival and procreation. And so our nervous system and parts of our brain um, have developed to do exactly that, survive and procreate. And so within survival and procreation, the rules are pretty darn simple. You know, you have to stay alive. And so in order to do that, the body has to do certain things and you have to um, bring forth your genetic material. And for that, the body have to do, has to do certain things. And so in a man, biologically speaking, not, um, you know, not any other way, in a man, what we're looking at is um, how do you procreate, let's say in the cave days, to just make this very black and white, where you're probably not going to live very long because there's an enormous threat in the hunting and in the warring tribes and in just staying alive through a winter and things like that. Well, ideally you have as much sex as you can with as many fertile women as you can. And so um, that, of course, is no longer a popular way of doing things for a multitude of reasons. But from a um, biological standpoint, that is what you are programmed to do. So when you are um, looking at other women and having desire for other women, you are following your biology, essentially. So you're, you're, you're following your biology and you are um, doing the thing your body is programmed to do. Now, there's other programmings, one of which is a um, societal tribal programming, uh, which is also part of survival, which means that if you want to stay alive in the cave days, let's say again, uh, you have to be part of a construct, a tribe that gives you safety numbers, that gives you support when you are sick or old age, helps you raise your children and, um, you know, do other 
things that can only be done in a group. And so within that construct, you now have to be appropriate for the, the construct of the group, which means that you're probably not going to have sex with every woman in the tribe, unless you're, of course, the tribal leader, which makes you very desirable because you have all the available resources. Uh, but for the most part, that wouldn't be okay because it would create um, upset in the tribe. So I'm saying all of this to say what societally is good is not necessarily what biologically is programmed. And furthermore, then there's higher layers of development where you can look at your spiritual development, your emotional development, how you want to be in the world. And for those reasons, you might choose to be with one woman because you love her, because it's a really good idea to um, make that kind of a union. And as you were saying, you're living with this partner for the first time. So there's many reasons why you wouldn't want to be with another woman uh, within yourself. And then, of course, there's also your partner to consider. And so that all said... Um, those are your uh, motivations to not engage with other women. But there's a part of each of us that wants that biological, um, you know, multi-layered um, availability. This is also true in women because women had to maintain um, ovulation and uh, pregnancy and breastfeeding. So women have a biological uh, knee-jerk, so to speak, thrust towards eating sweets. Because, of course, in the cave days, uh, you couldn't get very carb-rich food, so you had to get as many as you could in order to keep enough body fat on to ovulate and so on and so on. So there's a theory that women um, want you know, uh, food. And now, of course, we have trained ourselves out of just eating sweets for the most part. So now it's shoes and clothes and things like that, the same way that men want other women. And when you look at it that way, you know, as a woman, and you think about, um, I think about that sometimes just uh, being forced to wear the same outfit for the rest of my uh, life, that's a pretty horrible thought. And the same way a lot of men feel that being with one woman deprives them of all the other beautiful flavors of women for the rest of their lives. And so there is no easy answer here. So uh, I'm, I'm saying all of this to say it is biological and it also has other aspects to it, right? For instance, there's inspiration, there's beauty, there is the aspect of every man that loves woman, the, the big woman, and of course, within that, there's an enormous amount of energy and creativity. So um, the worst that you can do is try and clamp it down and feel horrible about yourself, which is a common um, uh, strategy. But instead, um, it's much better to openly accept that that is what you were built for and that there's still a part of you that sees that and see also the positive aspect of that, which is an admiration for woman and an admiration for beauty and inspiration. And then within that, uh, and you mentioned that here in the, in the question, uh, you can look at 
that particular offering or that particular engagement as um, engaging with nature, the nature of women, the, 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 the shape and the beauty of women. And like you said, that works, but not all the time. The rest of the time, you're going to have to feel the um, benefit of not going there for the sake of all your other values, but not in a clamp down, you are bad kind of a way, but in a, you are making educated and adult choices that benefit the entirety of your uh, existence and not just that small biological sliver that creeps up when you absolutely have to have that other woman. So it's a lot more in the bigger picture consideration that you can find your way through that. Ali asks, I appreciate the balance in your work between the yogic Eastern tradition and Western embodiment knowledge. I just wanted to ask more explicitly which concept of the self you align with more, the West or the East. I would love an answer in your podcast or some pointers to a podcast that may answer this. Hmm, that's a good question. And um, I'm, of course, aware of all the different ways that the different Eastern and Western traditions look at the self from, you know, the no self all the way to, um, you know, the, the Freudian concept um, of uh, how we perceive ourselves. I would say that um, in my work, because I've spent many years counseling people and working with people um, in, in the realms of relationship and sexuality, the uh, concepts that I'm working with the most for practicality reasons is uh, the concepts around individuation. So those would be Western concepts. And the reason I find that very important is that when uh, people come and they want to do, um, let's say, uh, let's say sacred sexuality, yogic engagement where with their partner or with themselves, often the engagement with that kind of uh, practice makes it that people... Uh, bypass a certain step of development and this happens both in workshops and it also happens in one-on-one -on -one work where people have actually never uh, individuated fully and they've never really actually developed the very thing that then they want to get rid of and um, I always say to my clients that you uh, can't renounce something you've never had and uh, uh, from a both teaching and development standpoint in working with people, one of the most important uh, things before you engage in relational or sexual practice is proper boundary function. And proper boundary function is, of course, only possible when you know where you begin and end. And so before you dissolve your sense of beginning and ending and before somebody goes into the questions around their ego, ego gets thrown around um, so heavily sometimes as something that must be eradicated. But no, no one wants to really look at the fact that they, they haven't actually uh, acquired 
the functions that would allow them to stop somebody from transgressing upon them or uh, ask them things to do, you know, to do things that they don't want to do. And that's um, both very important when you engage with strangers in a workshop um, when you casually date, let's say, it's also important in relationship, uh, in relationship with a intimate partner, relationship with family. And so um, I spend a lot of time engaging with people on boundary setting, strengthening and understanding their boundaries, knowing who they are. And I think only at that point and when that's clear and when you are yes is good, right? Because one of the other things that I'm always uh, having to tell people is your yes means nothing until you can say no, right? So your yes, your surrender or your uh, giving yourself over to a man, a woman, a teacher, whatever means nothing if you're not able to say no. And Within that, there's a lot of work to be done before they can, before it can be taken into the next uh, layers. So Ellie asks, do you think that for most people slash practitioners, the practice that they're most drawn to is not generally the practice they most need? Hmm. So I think um, there's different ways that we can look at practice. Some people look at practice uh, as a way to engage with something that they want to get better at. So we could call that a skill development. So um, in a human being, anything that you want to get good at, you have to practice because the body responds to repetition and the entire system, nervous system, the body muscles, the brain needs to repeat action over and over and over and over till it becomes, so to speak, installed in the body. And the body, mind, brain, however you want to say that. So if you look at practice as something to uh, install a skill or to develop a skill, then um, of course you would want to do a practice that helps with whatever skill you want to learn. And for some people, that would be a skill that they um, have to learn, but don't necessarily want to. For some people, that's something they very much would like to learn. So we could say that the practice that somebody's most drawn to uh, might be a practice of something that they're excited to learn, and that would be an actually really good thing. And within skill development, there can be a whole range of ways one can engage with practice, um, all of which have the uh, specific aim of developing the mind or the body or the emotional body or an, or an actual physical skill. Then uh, the second thing that you're saying there is, um, maybe the practice they're drawn to is not the practice they most need. Well, that's a bit touchy because who says? Um, there is a bit of a, a feeling there that uh, one always has to go to the edge of one's experience in order to grow. And that's true to a certain um, point because, of course, when we learn new things and when we 
uh, do things that are unknown to us, we are going to the edge of our previous experience. And that's a very good thing. It makes us more resilient and it gives us new skills. But when we look at, at some people's approach to practice where they do things in order to feel better or to be loved more or to be more acceptable or they think something is fundamentally wrong with them and they need to now do something about it, then that's a bit dicey. Because when you look at practice like that, which some people do in the self-development world, then what we're looking at is essentially working against what's there and what's good. Now, it's a very fine line there because, of course, when you learn a new skill, you're also um, trying to develop yourself, but not from a place of lack, but from a place of wanting to expand for the sake of the expansion and the learning. But when you want to practice from a place of lack, then there is a certain kind of a myth there where uh, people say, well, this is not the practice that you most need. The, the practice that you most need is the one that you resist. And the danger with that, and there is places where that's true, but the danger with that that I want to point to is that who says they need it most? Well, that's, that's where it becomes a bit dicey because that would mean that we, as the person saying, well, give me the practice I need most, place our trust in someone else to know us better than we do. And uh, we place our trust in somebody who um, we take their advice on the practice over our own um, willingness or over, over our own capacity. Now, there is uh, times and places for that. For instance, um, if I go to the chiropractor because my lower back is sore and the chiropractor gives me uh, an exercise to do that strengthens my lower back, that's probably not the practice I'm drawn to, but it's certainly the practice I need the most. And in that case, I am placing my trust in the chiropractor's uh, good uh, judgment and expertise to get me better. But then if I do that particular practice and I realize that that actually makes my back more uh, sensitive or sore, then I have to override the expertise and uh, support or suggestion of the chiropractor for my own best judgment because only I am in my body. So it's a bit of a, a double-edged sword here because we have to consider um, whom we trust, what kind of practice we um, accept, and what is our motivation for the practice. Is it skill development to expand and grow and um, uh, become a diff, you know, a, like a, a bigger human being, or is it? Uh, from a place of lack where we hope that somebody tells us something that finally makes us okay and then override our own best judgment for the sake of getting the thing we want. So those are the things to consider when we look at um, which practice to do. Also, uh, related but in a different 
vein, when we look at practice, one of the things that makes practice practice is the repetition. It's not a practice when you do it twice and then give up on it. So because of that, we have to be very practical when we look at practice. We have to look at things we actually want to do or look at things that the people we give practices to actually want to do. Because if it's something that nobody wants to do other than out of aspirational reasons, it's not going to be an ongoing practice. It's going to be a few days and then it um, just goes away. So when in doubt, I would always say pick something you want to do because your motivation to actually do it and turn it into a practice is much higher. And so that's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for sending in all your questions. I will be uh, releasing a second podcast with the rest of the questions. So look out for that soon. 